Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're talking about botany. I'm joined by Mark James, who is one half of a rare bookselling firm in the UK called Type and Form. Mark joins me today from Grantham in Lincolnshire. Type and Form have created an online exhibition dedicated to the work of pioneering botanist Joseph Banks. The exhibition is called Joseph Banks, a Lincolnshire botanist in Australia, and it features botanical engravings and much background information on Banks and his famous trip to Australia. Banks sailed from England to Australia with Captain Cook and he served as the expedition's naturalist. The voyage began in 1768 and they didn't return home until 1771. Along the way, Banks and his colleagues discovered and recorded around 1,300 previously undocumented botanical species. His work was to revolutionise European understanding of natural history. Welcome, Mark. Hello, Richard. Very good to join you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I really enjoyed going around your website and exploring all the information uh, and the artwork. Um, so, I learned that it's 250 years since Captain Cook and Joseph Banks landed in Australia. Um, why is Banks such an important figure in the history of botany? I suppose the answer to that falls into three parts, really. First of all, for his work as a botanist, on the voyage of the endeavour around the world, collecting an enormous range of specimens from Brazil, Tahiti, Australia, and New Zealand, um, which really revolutionised European understanding of the botany of those countries. Another aspect of his importance in the world of botany was his enormous personal collection of both books and specimens. These were so large that he was obliged to buy a new house to house them all. And even then he had to add a gallery and extra space to the house. He also ended up giving significant elements of his collections to the British Museum and also the library of the British Museum, which would become what we know now, what we now know as the British Library. And after his death, his collections then went to those institutions. A significant element of the foundation collections of the British Museum, the British Library and the Natural History Museum come from Banks' collections. And so he, he ran his collections in his house at 32 Soho Square very much as a, a research centre. The third element of his importance to the history of botany was his role in persuading James Edward Smith to purchase the library and collections of Carl Linnaeus, the great Swedish taxonomist, and use them to found the Linnaean Society of London in 1788. Now, with the, um, the countries that, they, that Banks visited, I'm thinking they're all pretty warm countries. What was the process that Banks used to record a specimen once he decided I'm, I'm going to document this particular plant. It was actually quite an interesting process. I mean, Banks was traveling as the head of a small scientific team, which he was funding entirely. And so the team comprised of himself, Daniel Solander, 
who had been a student of Linnaeus's and Hermann Spurring, again, a student of Linnaeus's. Uh, they were both naturalists. Then two artists, Sidney Parkinson and Alexander Buchanan, and together with four other people assisting him. And so what they would do was they would collect the specimens and then they would take them back on board. Banks and Solander would sort through the specimens, try and identify them using the onboard library and their own knowledge of natural history, and then pass them on to Parkinson particularly, who would draw many of them and paint them. In the earlier part of the voyage, Parkinson was able to keep up reasonably well with the collections. So as uh, specimens were passed to him, he would paint them and produce fairly finished drawings. As the voyage continued, however, the quantity of specimens they were collecting and gathering increased enormously. And so Parkinson would very often make very quick sketches and then notes about coloring. And then the specimens would go into the herbaria. So the, the specimens were uh, mounted on paper and carefully documented and annotated. Um, sadly, Parkinson died in the course of the voyage. But the sketches he made, together with the specimens that they brought back, then enabled other artists in London to produce finished drawings and paintings of the specimens collected. So... Parkinson seems to be a really crucial element of the whole process. Yes, he was. Um, he was a, a young Scotsman who'd come to London. He was very talented as an artist. And Joseph Banks first came across him when Banks had returned from his first voyage to Labrador and Newfoundland. And Banks brought back a, a number of botanical and other scientific specimens with him and was searching for a, an artist to draw them for him. Parkinson was recommended to him, and Banks gave him a number of these specimens, and he was very pleased with the work that Parkinson produced. So naturally, when Banks had the opportunity to join Cook on the Endeavour voyage, he wanted to make sure he had a really good artist who he could trust with him, and so naturally he went to Parkinson. And he didn't survive the voyage, which seems awfully sad. Yes, it was very. In many ways, Parkinson was a forgotten figure for many years, simply because although the drawings he made were engraved under Banks's direction, they weren't published. Com the complete series of drawings was not published until the 1980s. And it was only then, really, that... Parkinson's drawings became sufficiently well-known to prompt a, a, an informed assessment of his abilities. And since that time, his, the appreciation of his work and ability has steadily grown. So where are the original sketches and, and paintings today? They all went with the majority of Banks's collections to the British Museum. Banks had been a trustee of the British Museum and he played a very important role in its early development. And one must remember that the collections that Banks had in his house in Soho Square were the largest in London at that time. They comfortably outstripped the collections of the British Museum. So 
when on his death, his collections went to the British Museum, they augmented their collections enormously. Over time, the British Museum's collections were then subdivided between the British Museum, the Natural History Museum, and the British Library. All of the drawings are now at the Natural History Museum in London. Right. Now, um, on his return, Banks's research went into a book, um, but it seems odd to me that it wasn't actually published in his, in his lifetime. What happened? What happened along the way? Well, the, there were two elements to the book, which was essentially intended to be a catalogue of all the new species they discovered. And Banks was in the fortunate position that he was a very wealthy man. Um, and so he could actually afford to employ artists and engravers to produce copper printing plates based on the drawings made by Parkinson during the voyage. He also had descriptions of the plants prepared by Daniel Solander, who traveled with him. And the plan was to publish a 14-volume catalogue of the plants. This never happened, unfortunately, although um, 743 copper plates were engraved, which, if one thinks about it, is an enormous undertaking. Only a small number of proof prints were produced from them, and the text remained in manuscript form. There are a number of hypotheses as to why it was never published in Banks's lifetime. And remember, there were, some, there were nearly 50 years between his return from the Endeavour voyage and his death in 1820. But it's probable that he was simply overwhelmed by the scale of the Endeavour. Um, just to put it in context, when the full series of plates were finally printed, the work was undertaken, undertaken by electo-historical editions using a workshop with a staff of printers, and it took them something like 10 years to produce 116 sets of these engravings. So it really was a massive undertaking for a studio working in the late 20th century. For Banks working in the late 18th, early 19th century, even though he had the resources and the finances to support him, the production of such an enormous work seems to have overwhelmed his capacity. Another unfortunate uh, problem was the death of Daniel Solander. So it meant that his primary, his, his principal scientific collaborator on the work died. So obviously that had a very serious impact on the planned production of the work. But at Banks' death in 18th century England, what was the benefit for people to know about the plants and trees of places like Brazil, New Zealand and Australia? Uh, there were a number of benefits. I mean, Banks' primary ambition, I think, was the enlargement of scientific knowledge. He was a, a firm believer in the Linnaean system which had been developed uh, with the publication of Linnaeus's Systema Naturae in 1735. And throughout his life, Banks worked with students of Linnaeus. He was absolutely embedded in that taxonomic project. 
to bring together all that was known of the natural world within that system of classification. Apart from the benefits to science, there were, of course, other practical, economic, and commercial benefits. So, for example, uh, there was the possibility of trade with countries. There was the possibility of finding new materials which could be used by scientists to create new products. And obviously, Britain in the late 18th century was in the throes of the Industrial Revolution. And so there was great demand for scientific knowledge and the application of technology in the country. And so it's quite possible that he would have seen himself as working in the natural interest by discovering these new species, new plants. So if a plant was edible or had some use, he would have noted that? Yes, and he would have also asked the the peoples of those countries about the plants. So, for example, when he was in Tahiti, he actually learned the Tahitian language, and that enabled him better to discuss the properties of plants, their medicinal properties, or perhaps if they were used as dyes for fabrics. Now, what, what was his link to Lincolnshire, which is where you're calling from today? Um, Banks is, is one of the, the famous scientists to have come from Lincolnshire, amongst the others are Sir Isaac Newton, who went to school half a mile from where I'm speaking to you now, and George Bull, the mathematician. Um, so Joseph Banks's family inherited estates in Reevesby in Lincolnshire, and he grew up there and returned to Reevesby throughout his life. And the Sir Joseph Banks Society is based in Horncastle in Lincolnshire, close to Wes's family estate at Reevesby Abbey was. So, uh, yeah, I usually associate Lincolnshire with Mrs Thatcher. I think she's one of the famous people to have also come from Grantham. That's true, although um, it is rather curious that Grantham obviously had an international celebrity in the form of Isaac Newton for many years before the late 20th century, but uh, Margaret Thatcher's fame seems to have eclipsed that of Newton in the eyes of many. Right. Um, So, the the prints that I can see on your website that you're offering for sale, what's the origin of these? Where do they come from? Um, these were the prints produced by Electo Historical Editions between 1980 and 1990. And the prints were produced in an edition of 100 copies which were for sale to subscribers. And then there were other sets done for exhibition purpose for proofing and also some hors commerce sets. And so these prints come from different elements of the editions. Uh, Some of them were produced for exhibition purposes, some of them from the hors commerce sets, etc. They're very, very beautiful. It must be thrilling just to be looking at them. Yes, they're absolutely wonderful. I mean, the, the production of them is quite remarkable. The 18th century was very much the, the high point of British botanical engraving. The skills available to banks in London at that time were of the highest order. 
and the copper plates that were engraved under his direction survived in the British Museum in very good condition. They were then printed by master printers working for Electo Historical Editions, but they used a technique called a la poupe. So instead of rolling ink over the plate, wiping it off, and then printing onto paper, which would deposit the ink left in the groove of the engraving on the paper, the copper engraving plates were actually dabbed with color on selected areas. So then each print printed the color onto the paper for these prints, and they were then finished by hand. So each print is unique in the way that the color has been applied to the copper engraving paint. It sounds incredibly labor-intensive. It was, um, and as I said, it, it took them some years to print 116 sets of the 743 plates. You know, it really was a remarkable undertaking, but it, it meant that for the first time in more than 200 years, the plates that had been engraved for banks were finally seen in their full glory. There had previously been some publications of them, so at the beginning of the 20th century, the British Museum of Natural History published a selection of uh, lithographic reproductions of some 320 plates, but these were obviously copies of the plates rather than printing directly from the plates. And then in 1973, the Lion and Unicorn Press at the Royal College of Art published a small number of the plates printed directly from the copper plates. But this, in 1980, this was the first time that the entire series had been printed and one could actually fully appreciate Banks's achievement. And it took that long, 1980? Yes, That's yes. Um, big gap, isn't it, between his death and uh, making yes. it available to the general yes. public? Yes. Um, no, I mean, it, it was a, a remarkable undertaking, but you know, one that needed real specialist skills and the ability to dedicate a printing workshop to the project for 10 years. You know, it, it really was quite remarkable, this achievement. Really? So it's all about a book that never happened until a very long time after his death, but I, I guess the, the artwork and the documentation stands up on its own for, well, part of botanical history, natural history. Yes, absolutely. Um, and particularly if one remembers that some of the species that Banks and Parkinson and Solander documented are now extinct. So these are really important records of those plants. Yes, I wonder what the... I wonder what the reaction what would have been in London when they started learning about some of the some of the um, plants of places like New Zealand and Australia that are quite specific to those regions. I'm thinking like the maybe the baobab tree or something like that. Yes, I mean it, it would have been, I think, a, a reaction of wonder and excitement. Um, and also, of course, the question of whether one could still accommodate these comfortably into the Linnaean system. Um, so you know, that to demonstrate.
indicate how one fitted them into the taxonomic system. So can can you explain the Linnaean system to us in, in layman terms? Linnaeus' system of classification provided a mechanism where you could fit any specimen of a, a plant or a mineral or an animal into a structure which located it against the rest of the natural world. Um, so it enabled one to establish the relationship between, for example, different species of roses, that you could identify what the relationship between them was and confirm them as part of the same genus. And obviously, once you can establish the taxonomy of the natural world, how it all fits together, how it all relates, it puts you in a much stronger position to research it scientifically. Right, so it's the family tree of botany. Yes, yes, very much. Right. And that had only gone into uh, use shortly before he left on the voyage. Would that be correct? Yes, and there, there have been a number of attempts to find a system that would accommodate everything. Um, but none of them had really been widely adopted because there were often flaws with them or they didn't quite accommodate certain things. Linnaeus's system was in some ways very si simple. The first edition of the Systema Naturae is simply 12 folio pages. Um, and yet it enabled scientists working after him to structure their researches and discoveries very satisfactorily within within that taxonomy. And it's still used today? Yes, absolutely. Right. Okay. Uh, Mark, my final question, which we ask to all our guests, and that is, uh, what book or books are you currently reading? At the moment, I'm reading a remarkable biography of Richard Brinsley Sheridan, uh, called A Traitor's Kiss, which is by Fintan O'Toole. Extremely good and highly recommended. So I'm thinking Sheridan the playwright? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Smashing. Sounds good. Um, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, many thanks to Mark James from Type and Form for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Richard. I enjoyed it very much. Lovely. Uh, you can learn more about Joseph Banks and see some of his botanical prints at typeandform.com. Now, that's type and form with uh, and in the middle, the word and, and then form with an E on the end, uh, typeandform.com. Thanks for listening. My name is Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an Abe Books podcast. See you again soon.